Please turn with me now to Acts chapter 11. We will be looking at this chapter today in its entirety. Acts chapter 11. Building on the theme from last week of God showing no partiality, we'll be looking at that same kind of idea today as we look at how this story has kind of bleeds out into the surrounding area. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray, Lord, that you would use it to teach our hearts that are oftentimes centered on our own failing righteousness, on our own incomplete knowledge and insufficient wisdom. Lord, we need your wisdom, your knowledge. We need your righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray that you would show us that from your word, that you would convict us of the sin of idolatry, and that you would show us the way to truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As I read through... Acts chapter 11, and again, feeding off the same idea of Peter having this interaction with the Gentile group and seeing the Holy Spirit come upon them, um, and you know, Peter being a Jew and not, and having some reservations with that at first, of the Lord having to teach him. It made me think about missionaries, uh, and particularly one group of missionaries. We, in 2016, 400,000 Christian missionaries were sent from one country to another worldwide. And not surprising, really, the U.S. sent 127,000 of those missionaries to other countries. So another almost three-quarters are from other countries and to, into some other country. What is maybe surprising to us and what is, was kind of surprising to me the U.S. itself received, also received more missionaries than any other country. We received into the United States from other countries 32,000 missionaries. Why is that surprising to me? Maybe to you. I don't know. When we think of our country, what do we think of? We think of a few things like wealth and prosperity and then maybe even in the back of our minds Christianity as you know we a lot of times people want to see America as a Christian nation we probably think we don't need them right we don't need these other missionaries you should send them to places that actually need them we think of other countries especially non-European countries we often think of uh, you know the poor and the pagan in the world they are the ones that need these missionaries right it was an interesting read, the comments <clears throat> section in the article, which is always where the, where the dessert is. Uh, many of the comments suggested, well, here in America, again, we don't need missionaries. You should be sending them elsewhere. Some of the comments were like, after all, we are the most blessed nation. Therefore, we should be a blessing. We have it all. Therefore, we should be giving some of what we have. However... If we're not careful, it's this kind of mentality that could eventually lead us to think that we have no needs at all. 
Indeed, we are the ones who meet the needs of others. The truth, what is the truth? Well, some of you have already alluded to that truth. And America is an increasingly pagan nation. And though we historically had more Christian leadership, we've never really been a Christian nation in any sense, any more than any other nation has been. We are a nation that desperately needs the gospel. Just watch the news for about ten minutes and you'll be convinced of that. We'll need, we need and we'll take as many missionaries as we can get. I've met some of these folks over the years who are actually missionaries to our country, and their goal is the same as ours as we send missionaries elsewhere, to see the name of Jesus Christ known, to see the kingdom of God come on this earth. In our passage today, we have a very similar idea where the mission field becomes the missionaries where those who had need were soon the ones sending aid. And in last week's passage, again, Peter had an encounter with the Gentiles that led them to being converted and receiving the Holy Spirit. And in today's passage, Peter's going to give a report of this. Then we're going to have an account of another Gentile church. And that Gentile church plays a very important role in the historical church. The point is, Christ isn't just for the Jews, but for anyone who believes. Additionally, the Jews need to realize that just because Jesus came from them, that Jesus was a Jew, it doesn't preclude them from meeting him themselves. I think there's a lot that we can learn there, especially any time we think we've arrived at a point that we no longer need the gospel. So with that, I'm going to divide the text into three main sections. Peter's Report on the new Gentile church, the church in Antioch, and then the new church helping the old church. And so with that, let's look at the text, Acts chapter 11. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came, it, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how, how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, 
John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has regranted has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he had came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For the whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold that this, by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Since Peter in this text really gives us a review of last week, I'm just going to jump right in and begin looking at his report. There at the beginning of the chapter. So in the first 18 verses, we basically get a repeat of what we read in chapter 10 with a few new ideas, and that's where I'll focus my attention. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So Peter walks back into Jerusalem here he meets this group of Jewish believers, this circumcision party, who were holding on to the idea that circumcision was a necessary component of the true Christian religion. They're going to continue to battle with this throughout the book of Acts and really throughout many of his letters. He's going to continue to battle with this idea of the circumcision party. Of course, this is the opposite thing that Peter had been taught, right? Peter was shown in this very dramatic way with the, with the animals being lowered down and, and the reptiles and birds and many of these animals being unclean. He was shown that what made him Jewish wasn't necessary for salvation. Only Jesus, belief in Jesus is necessary for salvation. Peter knew this. But being Jewish... It was a thing that was deeply held. It was who he was. He was born Jewish. He only ever knew these customs. It was his very identity. And so what Peter was being shown and these new 
and these uh, other believers there in Jerusalem is they're being shown that their new identity was actually in Jesus Christ alone. They said, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. It brings me back to, makes me think of another time in the book of Luke. And so turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 27. Jesus often had to answer these types of questions himself. Who are you associating with, Jesus? So in verse 27 of Luke chapter 5, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast at his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at a table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus here is dealing with this very same issue, right? Well, you shouldn't be eating with those guys, Jesus. You're better than they are. Peter's been told by his uh, friends, you shouldn't be eating with those guys. We're Jewish. We're better than they are. Granted, the men that Jesus were, that Jesus was eating with, the tax collectors and sinners, as the Pharisees called them, were likely Jewish as well, but the point is the same. The only obstacle that Jesus considered there with those tax collectors and their sinners and those sinners was their unbelief. And he knew that he had the cure for that unbelief. And so Peter treats this very much the same. Look with me back in Acts 11 at verses 16 and 17. And I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I think that first little bit there in verse 16 should really cause us to pause and I remembered the word of the Lord. Anytime we have questions or problems, that should be our solution to them. Peter's response. Who was I to stand in God's way? Not as if Peter could somehow block God. That's not what he's saying here. That Peter could have somehow with his actions caused God to be thwarted in some way. Sometimes you'll hear that. You'll hear from pulpits someone say something. Don't, don't get in God's way. You should allow Him to do things. The, the Creator of the universe doesn't need our permission to do things. Nor is He blocked by a puny fisherman's actions. What is Peter saying? That if he could somehow block God's actions. Not at all. But it's kind of like standing in the way of a bulldozer. If a bulldozer is coming at you and you decide you're going to stand in the way, the bulldozer still is able to do its work. You lose every time. 
And so why would Peter get in the way of what God was doing? Instead, we want to be on the bulldozer's team. Do what God is doing. Don't get in his way. And so Peter's reasoning then, and the Spirit's hand in that, changed the hearts of those there. What does it say? They fell silent. They didn't have anything to say to this. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This gospel is not just for us. It is for them. Talked about this last week. Where did God first say that promise? All the way back in Genesis when he said to Abraham, Through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. God is bringing repentance not only to the Jews, but to the whole world. And so I think it's important to be reminded that to show any type of partiality when it comes to the gospel is to stand in the way of God. That doesn't mean, again, that you're somehow blocking his progress. You'll just become a speed bump. But our standing in the way could easily have something to do with our own abstract view of our own righteousness. This is a lot of what we focused on last week, how our, our own righteousness is better than that of those that we may be trying to share the gospel with. Whereas you have our, we have our own derived self-righteousness that causes us to not believe in God or, or to say that we don't need God. I mean, and that lost people around us don't need God. They need our righteousness. They need to be more like us. Obviously, that's not the problem. But I think it could be even more concrete, this idea of Jew versus Gentile. It could be something very simple like that. It could be something like another person's skin color or their ethnicity, their religion, or even what's more and more coming into the news, their sexual orientation. Our, our synod recently has endeavored to create a report on our views of that, which I, I told them just to copy and paste Romans 1 onto the report and sign it, but they think that they need to have something a little more cogent than that, I guess. But whatever. We could use obstacles like these, like these things, like skin color or religion, you know, or anything else. And we could think, man, well, God obviously only wants other folks just like me. So I'll just smile and nod at everyone else. This has been a problem. This is still a problem. This this kind of thing is oftentimes more subtle than we think. We constantly have to be on guard against this sort of thing. The reality is, is that we all carry with us some sort of prejudice all the time. It is just normal. We always have to be on guard. To say otherwise is to pretend. So quickly... Just on the matter of these, especially the one on on sexual orientation, to be clear, homosexuality in any of its various forms are sinful conditions by which the individual is guilty of sin that earns them eternity in hell. I'm not trying to say anything for that in any way, but that sin is no different than any other sin that earns anyone hell, since all sins earn us that. Those folks still need our care and compassion. They still need Jesus. And how will they hear without a preacher? 
God is more than capable of seeing them come to repentance as well. If He can change our wicked hearts, then He can do anything. So as we minister to others, let's remember that we have been called to preach to everyone, not just those that make us feel comfortable. So next point is the church in Antioch. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist, also preaching the Lord Jesus. So remember back earlier in the book when Stephen was uh, murdered for his belief and after his, after his death there was this widespread persecution of the church that broke out namely from the Jews. And so the believing Jews then kind of spread out all over the place. And so really we're still reading about them being so spread out and kind of coming to grips with that. Many of them, it made them afraid to speak to anyone, probably that wasn't Jewish, probably only Jewish believers even. They were afraid to talk to anyone. This sense of fear can be a very strong motivator. We kind of get that. But it says there are a few. There were a few from Cyprus and Cyrene that chose to put that fear away and to speak to the Gentiles. Cyprus as you may know, is an island in the eastern Mediterranean, which would have been a major center for port and trade. Jerusalem's here, and Cyprus is like right next door out in the middle of the sea. Cyrene is actually a city in what's modern-day Libya, so quite a bit further away on the coast of northern Africa. Again, quite a bit further. And so I think the idea here is to show us that the gospel has gone out, even so, to the uttermost parts of the world, the world beyond the Jews and the Samaritans even, and into the unknown. And so here you have these two from these two more remote regions that have come back and they are now sharing the gospel in this place called Antioch. Antioch is which is would be in modern day Syria. This next verse gives us hope. Look with me at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Again, what do we read in the book of Acts? The preaching of the gospel. The Lord's hand was upon those people, and those people were converted. Through that, the faithful preaching of God's word, we get the Lord's provision, and it leads to conversion. At our meeting of Senate, a pastor was preaching about sharing the gospel, and he said, and it really stuck with me, we shouldn't pray for opportunities, but rather we should pray for boldness because opportunities are all around us. Sure, we should continue to pray for opportunities, but he had a real point. We don't lack opportunities. We're around unbelievers all the time. But boldness to share is what we do lack when we have those opportunities. These believers had boldness because they realized that it wasn't their hand at all. 
that would change the hearts of the men and women there. But it was the Lord's. It has to be our motivation as well. The Lord is the one who changes the hearts of men and women, not us. Again, spread the seed. We can water the seed, but ultimately it's the Lord that makes it grow. And you see that thing happening here in Antioch. This church just is going to explode, basically overnight, and grow. So this report goes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem still is kind of the center of the church. And so they send a very reliable man, who we've kind of gotten to know at this point, but not really, Barnabas, who came and preached encouragement to them. He was sent basically to lead this church. We're given another insight into the character of Barnabas, who was obviously a man above reproach and of high moral character. says that he was a good man, verse 24, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Through his guidance, through the church's obedience, the church continued to prosper. And so you kind of can imagine Barnabas being sent to this place where there's a lot of Gentiles, and he's probably like, what do I do? The church is just kind of exploding. Here I am, one of the only leaders. What do I do? Well, he remembers that probably a couple of years ago, they sent a man named Saul to a place called Tarsus. And they went and so he went and found Saul. If you remember, Saul was in hiding because he was already making enemies with the people who hated the church. He found him, and with Saul... They helped to lead this new church in Antioch, and it would continue to be a hub in the church for many, many years. And Antioch is a historical home for the Christian faith. It didn't last forever, but it was for a long time. It is this place where we're told that there, verse 26, that the believers are first called Christians. There's some debate over this term, Christians, as to whether it was a term that they used or for themselves, they called themselves this, or was it like a derogatory term? Um, not really important. The term is, uh, what it means is just simple, one who is like Christ. And the term, sadly, is falling out of use more and more in our church today, in, the, in capital C Church. Many want to replace it with things like Christ follower, or I've, I've seen lots of other things out there. I think it's a good term. I mean, it means like Christ, something that we are because of what Christ has done for us. And so let's not shy away from the use of that term. But anyway, a few things here. Namely, again, the boldness to share the gospel, even when in these times of difficulty. We're never, and we need to understand this, we're never going to have an easier time than we have right now to share the gospel. If anything, it's going to get more and more difficult for the gospel to be shared freely in our society as our own culture hates Christ more and more. So the boldness required is, and it's more, and we have to understand this, the boldness required is more than simply just stepping out of our comfort zone, as oftentimes it's categorized But it's being able to state the truth you believe concerning God, concerning man, concerning morality, and being able to hold that ground based on biblical principles without any sort of bending, without any sort of capitulation. 
If you look at the church at large today, what is happening? The church is giving up more and more ground to the world. The church is beginning to accept things like maybe maybe Jesus wasn't who he said he was. Maybe the word of God isn't really all inherent. Maybe these sins that are very plainly listed in the scriptures aren't really that sinful. And more and more, we give, and guess what unbelievers are going to do? The unbelieving world, they're going to take every inch that we give them. And so boldness, more and more, is just going to be representing the truth of what scripture says. Even these large stalwart, conservative denominations it's been all over the news the, the Christian news are having very questionable conversations this summer at their denominational meetings why are they doing that? fear of man they're exchanging the truth of God for the lie that pleasing man and being accepted and making sure everyone's on board with you is better and is more important. It'll get them every time. There will come a time when we'll have to make a decision. Preach the truth or preach the truth and face ridicule or preach something else that kind of looks like the truth but is actually just a pile of garbage. We need not only or we need only read the book of Acts Read the life of Jesus to know what the right path is, to see how the church has done it. The church in Antioch did the right thing. They preached the truth even when it wasn't fashionable, and the Lord grew them there. That should be an encouragement to us. Brothers and sisters, let us not be people who fear society. But once he fear the Lord, he will grow his church. We need only be faithful to what he has taught us. Be faithful to the ordinary means of grace. God will do extraordinary things through that. And so lastly, the new church helps the old church. Verses 27 through 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So these prophets foretold a famine in the land, and it happened. Um, again, this, just a quick little blurb there. This idea of prophets and prophecy was still very much a thing in the New Testament church. And so the Gentile church there in Antioch, gathered resources and sent it to Judea via Saul and Barnabas. Think about this for just a moment. This kind of should take us back to the idea of America receiving missionaries. This would have seemed very backward at the time that they were involved, right? Very much like China or Korea or Brazil sending their missionaries to America where we think, no, we're the spiritual hub of the world, right? Not really. Imagine the Jews having to accept aid 
from Gentiles who they're just now learning it's okay to eat with. But we're the ones who are supposed to be blessing the world, right? Or, or we're God's chosen country. Not speaking for the Jews, but that's kind of sometimes what we think about ourselves, is it not? I'm sure that Italy and Turkey probably said this at one time in their history since back several hundred years ago, thousands years ago, they were the hub of the Christian church. And then you have places like Ireland and UK in general, where churches are now museums. But at one point, that was the hub of the church. Then it was Germany and Switzerland, again, museums. Then us. What are our churches turning into? Now the rest of the world looks to us as a country with a dying Christian faith. Here's the point. There isn't a country that isn't charged or that is charged with blessing the world. No one country is charged with doing that. Who is charged with blessing the world? Followers of Jesus Christ through him. If the church isn't blessing the world, then there is no true blessing to be had. Any provision that isn't the word of God to lost souls is fleeting. Yes, food, clothing, shelter, all very important and necessary things. When I hear of mission trips to build houses, places where they go and like, we're building such and such a house, that's great. Or we're sending this medical missions team to like fix people's teeth or whatever. That's good. I'm glad they're doing that. Always good to do that. But if you build 40 houses and you don't mention Jesus, what have you done? You cause them to hope in a nice house rather than a savior of their soul. And so a few things here. We should always be looking out for ways that we can bring relief to those who are suffering. Absolutely. We should be providing those basic things that some are not able to provide. We mentioned earlier, just packing lunches for kids who don't eat during the summer because school's not happening. Very important. Hungry people have a hard time hearing the gospel. That's just the truth. There's suffering out there, and we can do very simple things to alleviate that. Something temporary, like a meal, like a pair of shoes, permanent, like a house or a job. These are all very good things that we should be working in. However, when this replaces the message of the gospel, what are we giving them? A lie. The message of the gospel is that food and shelter, these sorts of worldly things, are fleeting. Only Jesus Christ can offer you salvation that is for eternity. History is going to prove that both the church in Judea and Antioch eventually exchanged this truth about Jesus. These churches, these big hubs of Christianity back here in the book of Acts, they're no longer churches. If you go there now, these are hubs of another pagan religion. Pagan religion and a false god. What are we going to do? What are we going to make important? Again, worldly provisions are important. Don't hear me saying it's not important to feed people. I'm not saying that at all. But if we aren't offering the free gift of eternal life, we're giving them nothing. 
Let us be ones who see the gift of the gospel as the thing that we have to offer to the world. In conclusion, how can we do this? Again, first we have to remember that it is all we need as well. We are no longer, we are not at a point where we can say, yes, I have arrived. I don't need the gospel anymore. I'm only offering it to people. Absolutely not. We need the gospel. If we love others, we'll want to give them the thing that sustains and keeps us the most. But if we show our love only by giving our worldly possessions, we show the wickedness of our own heart. We show our own reliance on those things. If, however, we offer those, them the love of Jesus Christ, we offer them so much more than a meal or a job. We offer them eternal life. And again, we don't stop needing this. And in fact, there will become a time when we'll need to be reminded of that in our lives. It would be just like Korea sending missionaries to the U.S. It's a humbling thing. Something that 50 years ago would have seemed like a pipe dream, but today is reality. Why? Because the U.S. has forgot that salvation comes from Jesus Christ alone. Korea, other countries like that are reminding us. Let us be the ones who who receive the good news of Jesus Christ again, but let us not forget that the gospel offers this truth to any and to all who would believe. So who do we preach to? Any and to all. Whether or not they believe is up to the Lord. We offer the gospel to everyone who will hear. Let us be bold in how we preach the name of Jesus so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, so many times we see ourselves as not being in need or see others as inferior and this is just a normal condition of our hearts and Lord so help us help us to be ones who offer the free gift of the gospel to all even if they're different than we are and so Lord we pray that you break down those obstacles in our own hearts that you teach us more and more to rely on you so that we might give the only hope for eternal life and that is you It's in your name we pray. Amen.